Yo, peeps. Tuesday, Feb 8th. You're watching Market Call. I'm Guy Adami. I'm always joined by Dan Nathan. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, we break down the markets through the lens of futures. Today's Market Call is brought to you by our presenting sponsors, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And of course, Open Exchange, Dan, because they manage the virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. I am all geeked up, as you can tell. But you look to be in parts unknown, as they used to say, in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. You know, I spent the last 15 minutes getting a hotel room ready for our market call, guys. So this is a virtual and an IRL meeting for me that matters here, man. I'm learning a little bit about video production. Hey, listen, you and I were doing the market call yesterday at 5 o'clock, which, by the way, we are going to be doing a special version of market call for the next three nights and then all of next week, all at 5 p.m. Why? Because the show that you were like the goat of, the original gangster of CNBC's Fast Money is dark during the Olympics. So that bums us out, but it gives just the opportunity to kind of flex our market call muscles a little bit. Was that fun last night or what, guys? I had a great time. And I guess you can be both the OG and the GOAT at the same time. I'm Listen, I'm humbled by that. I appreciate that. I don't think it's true necessarily. But let's get into it, Dan, because we got some interesting things going on in the market. What do they do when they split a screen down the middle and you look at one thing on the left side and one thing on the right side? What do they call that? Yeah, they call it a split screen guy, which is a little bit very similar to sort of the market action. You know, last night at five o'clock, we were talking about that dump into the close, right? And we had a little follow through this morning. So it's kind of funny when you look at this split screen, talk to me about it because it's like I'm of two minds. I'm of a split mind here, guy. Listen, J.P. Morgan says you buy it when the VIX spikes. In other words, when you see these big dumps in the market, subsequent spike in VIX, that's been the opportunity. And quite frankly, that's been the right thing, the right course of action. Bank of America is saying some of the things that we've been saying for a long time now, Dan, that, listen, below the surface, there's a lot of trouble brewing. You've been saying it literally for the last six months. Now it's coming to fruition. And Bank of America is coming around to that as well. I'm more in the Bank of America camp. But, you know, this is why we do this. And we say it all the time. We get tired of hearing me say that what makes markets and people are on two sides of the fence. I can make a compelling argument for both. I come down more of the B of A side. You know, it's funny. And this is purely anecdotal here. I feel like JP Morgan is like the poster child for the big money center banks for BTFD. You know what that means, right, guy? I feel like I buy the dip, but I know what the F is probably some bad word we're not allowed to say. No, it's freaking dip. Buy the freaking dip. Okay. So there's nothing horrible going on there. I just feel like as a house, I've never heard them make a cautious call ever. Now, it seems like, you know, they make some very quantitative calls based on multi-factor sort of things. But what we're here to do, guys, kind of demystify it a little bit. And I think the Bank of America, they're the ones breaking it down for Americans trying to figure all this stuff out. I mean, listen, you and I have been saying this for a while. Just a lot of the things that have been happening over the last six to nine months, let's say, in the markets under the hood have been really just kind of dusted under the carpet because there's like 10 stocks have been driving the whole thing. And I guess our concern is also been, it's not just the concentration, but much of the performance of the stock market had come from those names. And, you know, people, you know, we're looking at the market down the NASDAQ or the the S&P down, you know, five and a half percent for the S&P and about 10 percent for the NASDAQ. We were up 26 percent in the S&P 500 last night. So it seems like we've had a manic sort of just market in just a few months here. Dozens and dozens and dozens of stocks, and I'm going to use this word because it's accurate, have crashed, absolutely crashed. And, you know, you say, okay, some of them aren't that big. I'll give you that. By the way, a lot of them are very big. And Facebook, by the way, has officially crashed. And that's not a small stock by any stretch of imagination. And oh, by the way, 
market cap wise, I think today, given the price action, NVIDIA is now a larger company than Facebook, just to put things in context. But this is an S&P chart through, again, the lens of futures. And let's take a look at this, Dan. We've outlined it. You had this uptrend line. That's the green line, a very well-defined uptrend line that we basically broke a few weeks ago, broke in a significant way. We obviously had that push down to 42.50. We had mentioned a number of times that we traded down to and held the October low, and that augured well for a bounce. That's exactly what we got. We got a bounce back through the 200-day moving average up to the trend line, seemingly a fail. Now we're sort of in, I would say, no man's land. You have to make a choice here. Or, Dan, you have to let the market choose for you. We're literally right at the 200-day moving average, either side of it. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. You mentioned correctly that the market is probably waiting for CPI data on Thursday. We shall see. But right now, it's sort of a tug of war, and I think the Bears are going to wind up winning. Yeah, you know, we mentioned this last night, a market call at five that, you know, one of the things that I'm really, you mentioned Facebook, the fact that it had that 27% one day gap and then kept on going lower. It's lower again today. Yesterday was down 5%. You know, that's a really horrible four day sort of move. But the other one that really struck me is actually maybe even more important if you're trying to figure out where the S&P goes is Google. Alphabet last week had that great quarter, great guidance, a gap to a new all time high in one fell swoop and it has since filled in that entire gap it opened at the high closed at the low that day and then it's gone down over the last few days so to me that's something to keep a close eye on which brings us to the nasdaq futures here guy and you know this chart looks similar but it's really different on a relative basis it's much weaker if you look at those nasdaq futures or so well below its 200 day moving average actually found resistance on that bounce back you know where support you know has kind of been the case for the 200 day moving average over the last few days for the S&P 500 since it's bound. The NASDAQ had a hard time at that kind of nice round number near 15,000, which is also the 200-day. You look at this, the NDX, I mean, it traded made an all-time high effectively. If you look in November, right before Thanksgiving, subsequent sell-off, and then it bounced once again. People will look at this and say, you know what? Not a textbook double top, but a short-term double top, and that's held up. You mentioned we violated that 200-day moving average in a meaningful way traded back up to the levels of sub- prior support and resistance, and now seemingly failed. The armchair technicians out there will look at this 200-day sloping now down moving average and say, that does not augur particularly well. I'm glad you mentioned Google, and we'll look at a Google chart tonight at 5 o'clock, because you know that stock post-earnings, I want to say it traded a tad north of 3,000, and since then it's come off about 8.5%. Very quietly, nobody talking about it, so I'm glad you brought it up. You couple that with Facebook, and you can understand why there's some trouble here in the NDX, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, well, listen, Guy, you know, one of the reasons why we spend a lot of time when we're looking at futures with on the charts is that a lot of people who trade futures use stops. And that's one of the things that I think are most useful about futures. As long as I have been trading, when I started in the late 90s, stops was a really important thing. So one of the reasons why we talk about that X marks the spot in the S&P 500, you know, that intersection between the breakdown level at 45.50 or so and that uptrend, which was also where it just found resistance, 
If you're short via the futures and the S&P 500, that's where you might stop out that position because if you get through there, or some people like to do it just above that level, you know, there's a lot of cat and mouse going on there. As far as the NASDAQ futures are concerned, just use that 200-day moving average. If you think that we're going to basically be kind of making lower lows and retest the lows from last week, which I kind of think we do. I think that when we talk about Microsoft and Apple and Alphabet and the results that they had, which kind of put a near-term bottom in the market, you know, to me, you know, the good news is out of the way now. And now we have to contend with all the things we're going to spend the next 20 minutes talking about is higher rates, a tighter environment, and then possibly a profit or at least an EPS kind of deceleration a little bit. But this is really manifesting itself in small caps, Guy. And this is an area that you've been all over since that false breakout in November. Talk to me about the Russell future. So these are the E-mini futures, again, a CME product, but a very well-defined sideways action from effectively early last year up until the false breakout, again, around Thanksgiving, then the subsequent sell-off. That's not a good-looking chart by any stretch of imagination. All that consolidation should have led to a breakout to the upside, and it appeared as though we were having that again in November. Obviously, it didn't come to fruition. Now, what is that telling you? Again, in my opinion, that huge ramp-up that we saw in this was predicated on the fact that the, all the vaccines were coming. People thought the economy was going to go gangbusters. And theoretically, the small caps were, had the most to gain. And that was correct at the time of the first huge move up a year or so ago. Subsequent to that is now rates are going higher, but not because by any stretch the economy is getting better, but because inflation is clearly the concern. And these stocks probably have the most to lose from a high inflationary environment, which is why it's rolling over. 200-day moving average, sloping lower, again, significantly through it in a meaningful way. What does it mean? Well, I look at this and say 1750 or so, which you go way back to 2020, which was a prior level of resistance. That should be your support, Dan Nathan. Next, we have to get into our next slide, by the way. Lizanne Saunders, we ought to put up a slide for her. Tightening risks. Strategists at Bank of America note that the head of the first Federal Reserve rate hike Market has only been more expensive in 1999 and 2000. If rate hikes start in March, which they will, by the way, it will be one of the most expensive environments ever for tightening. And this is according to Bloomberg. And what does that mean? Well, it means the Fed is tightening into a period of time when stocks are really expensive on a relative basis. And you have to wonder how that sort of plays itself out. The forward 12-month P.E. ratio for the SPX of 197 is above the five-year average of 18.6. But you know what? It's more important to look at the 10-year average, which is about 16.5 to 17. So you're still about a standard deviation away. If this is going to be mean reverting, it stands to reason that we're going to see a pullback in PEs, which theoretically should mean we see a sell-off in the broader market. So that's what I'm looking at here. Liz Ann Saunders does really, really, she does very thoughtful work, and I think it's important to bring that up. Yeah, she does here. And, you know, I do think that, you know, valuation is important. You know, we talk about it all the time. And, you know, over the last, call it, you know, a few years, the goalposts have shifted. Wouldn't you say so, Guy, as far as the sort of metric that people are looking at? I know that a lot of viewers and we like to kind of quote PEs and we have, again, a split screen. Look at Amanda Diaz just bringing it this morning here. You know, when you look at from a PE basis, this is fact set data that they've given us. It's not outrageous. You know what I mean? If you think about, you know, we are in this new exponential age, Guy, where technology is just seeping its way into every industry. And maybe we've seen a little valuation creep 
on that regard. But, you know, you and I have been talking about it for months and months and months. It's just some of the valuations that we've seen in some of these high growth areas trading at a multiple of sales that would be very rich on PE terms, right? And those, those valuations as a multiple of revenues are just not sustainable. So that's a big story that we've seen. You used the term crash a little bit ago, okay, about a lot of stocks, dozens of stocks, it's actually hundreds of stocks if you really think about it. And one of the reasons why is that multiple compression in a decelerating environment. And there's still some expensive stocks out there and the broader market is expensive. And that's important now to look at our next screen, the CME Fed tracker, basically. What are we going to do in terms of rates? And you can see it right there, 25 to 50 basis point hike in the March meeting, 71.2%. So, I mean, you can see what's going on. The market, to a certain extent, I guess, is pricing this in. But you know, now you have people talking about potentially, and I've heard this from a few, potentially seven rate hikes, which would be really interesting. I mean, I don't think it's happening either, by the way, but the fact that they're even considering that or people are talking about it just, again, gives credence to the fact, something we've said for a while, that the Fed has gotten themselves really turned around, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, but th- let me ask you this, guys. So what do you think about the fact, I think it was Pershing Square's Bill Ackman who introduced the idea a few weeks ago that the Fed should really shock the system, go with a 50 basis point hike in the March meeting. We know that there's not a meeting here in March. So the last, or excuse me, in February, the last time they met was just a couple of weeks ago in January. I just kind of feel like with the markets on edge, the stock market in particular, that might not be a great thing. Now, you can say, well, they're trying to kind of get investors more used to what's going on. But I think there's a case to be made that, you know, you hike more aggressively after a period of just zero interest rates for all intents and purposes and billions and billions, if not trillions of quantitative easing, that is going to work its way through the economy in a way that could really slow things down. And then if you have the negative wealth effect of the stock market going on, you know, going down, that could be a real problem. No question. They created that, though, as you know, and we talk about it. And maybe Ackman's talking his book. Clearly, I don't think they're going to do that because I don't think they're looking to shock anybody. And I think they're trying to wean the market off this in a very cautious and considerate and timely fashion. So for them to do a 50 point, I don't think anybody's looking for that. And quite frankly, that would be probably as bad a move as, as they've made. Although quite and I'll say this as well, Dan doesn't mean it's not justified. It's just we're not in a point now where we can probably do it. Now, this is, we want to look at 10-year yields. This is 10-year notes, Dan Nathan. Talk to me about this one real quick, because it's a really interesting chart. What this speaks to, obviously, is this going lower effectively means rates are going higher. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, we don't look at the the note that often, uh, the bonds itself, but we look at the yield because that's the thing that we're most focused on as it relates to the Fed. But you know, it's interesting, guy, that this has been, you know, a lot of people for years and years, really since the financial crisis, have said, well, when we're sitting there talking about yelling about valuations, the equity market and bubbles being inflated. There's a lot of people, maybe a lot smarter than me, saying, no, 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 the real bubble is in the, mo- the bond market, in the treasury market, that sort of thing. So, you know, you look at this thing, it's come back to a level where things started to take off a little bit, where the yields started going down precipitously in 2019. And one of the reasons why we look at this, it just gives us a sense for the people that hold these, the institutions and kind of what they're looking at. The flip side of that, if you look at the yield on the 10-year note, and we have a two-year chart of that, and you know, you've been calling for 2%, which is basically gets us back to that summer of 2019, when we saw bonds really start to take off, and we saw that 
precipitous drop in the beginning of 2020. We know that why that was. The Fed moved very quickly to lower Fed funds rate and the 10-year note went down after it. But you've been saying 2%. We're going to get back there. We're almost there. It's 1.96 as we're talking. Yeah, we're almost there. And if we, listen, I'm going to pull a card of work. So if we can toggle back real quick, if you are trading futures, I mean, this is an interesting level. You know, if you have, again, the temerity to do something ahead of the CPI number on Thursday, I mean, if you look at this, if you're looking to get long something, meaning that you want think that yields are going to go lower in the short term, here's an opportunity to buy something with a very defined risk reward on the downside. You drew the line. The line, as they say, draws itself. One can understand why maybe playing this from the long side, betting that yields might go down in the short term makes sense. And then we'll go back to the 10-year yield, which shows exactly that. You know, where levels basically we've topped out at and sunk from early in 2020, Dan. And by the way, while we're mentioning yields, we'd be remiss, and we'll talk about this at 5 o'clock tonight with some charts. Banks are having a really good day, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, they are. And, you know, they haven't been doing that great since earnings over the last, let's call it a few weeks. It was the first group to announce, and we saw, you know, we saw dispersion in the results. And we saw some stocks not trade particularly well. Others like Wells Fargo trade very well. I think Bank America has shown some really good relative strength. So, you know, banks like this, you know, I mean, I don't really see that yield curve steepening right now. So let's just back back that out for a second, Guy. We have a 10-year at 1.96 and we have a two-year that's also trading at multi-year highs. So, you know, above 1.2%. And we talk about where the two-year yield was, which is closely tracked Fed funds rate. Right. It's basically reflecting three or four 25 basis point increases. Right. That, that they basically I don't know if they guided to, but they've suggested that's in the cards over the next year. Yeah. Your point is the market's doing it for them. And by the way, we mentioned banks, but, you know, sort of in that subset of financials or insurance companies. And we, if you watch Fast Money, you know, we've been talking about them literally for the last year saying, you know, if you think rates are going higher, almost by definition, you have to be bullish some of these names. And if you look at today, and we'll have these charts on at five o'clock as well. But names like Prudential, PRU, and MetLife both making new all-time highs today, Dan Nathan. What's not making a high, though, uh, sliding a bit, as they say, is the oil market. And I love this headline. People are very creative. Oil slips from seven-year high ahead of more U.S. Iran talks. I guess what's happening here is a couple things. Core heads are seemingly prevailing for the short term. Um, a lot of people now saying that Russia is looking for an elegant exit from the situation that they created themselves, and we'll see. And I think that's why you're seeing some of the bloom off the rose, at least today, Dan, in the oil market. And by the way, this is something you've been looking for. Well, I mean, listen, this move from the low 60s to the low 90s in just a, you know, a couple of months or so is pretty, it's pretty impressive, especially when you consider the backdrop of a couple of things, Guy, The economic data has actually been slowing, right? In some levels, ISMs and that sort of thing. Obviously, the jobs data has been really hot over the last couple of months, but that wasn't the case when we got the December jobs number. So we've had inflation data really high. This one, you know, when you look at that bottom left to upper right, you look at the volatility bands kind of widening. We had Carter Braxton worth a market call um, yesterday morning, and we talked a little bit about this move in, in, in crude, and it looks like this big cone in a way, right? And so if you draw a line from the bottom left to the top of the resistance, and you attach it to all of those highs, you just hit that level just yesterday, okay? And so maybe we're due for a little bit of a pullback. We have that horizontal line, which was the breakout level. The one thing I would just say is like, look at how the volatility bands, look at how those peak to trough declines have gotten wider, right? And so the idea of a real shallow 
shallow decline from here doesn't maybe make a whole heck of a lot of sense. So just like the tapping of the SPR release right before Omicron in November, sometimes these stuff seem to steamroll a little bit here. You've had a great call on oil. For me, all I know is this. The last time the Fed came off a of zero interest rate and they were tapering and they started raising the dollar rallied, rates rallied, and crude oil got killed. And crude oil went down for a very long time. Now, it's different this time. I get it. We've had this pandemic and the fits and starts of reopening the global economy are going to be different. But all I know is that China has also been easing of late. Their, their economy is not fantastic. So I don't know, maybe $100 in the cards, but I can't see it much higher than that. Personally. Yeah. And you look at this line. I mean, it stands to reason that if we are in the midst of a sort of a detente, which is a great word, maybe that 85 level is where we find support. By the way, at five o'clock, we're going to put up an OIH chart as well to show you how that's been trading, maybe some of the underlying equities that comprise it, Dan Nathan. But you know what I'm a fan of, and I know what you're trying to be a fan of, but you're not feeling the love right now is the gold market. And here we are. I mean, we're in this pennant formation. We're going to show this every day because with each passing day, we get closer and closer to some sort of reconciliation or day of reckoning or something because it ain't going to stay here. You know what I know that it's going to break one way or the other, Dan. If we had a bet, I can't remember on one of these calls. It was like a hundred one way or you and, something. You and Danny Moses, oh, I believe. Oh, yeah. I make, I'm making all these prop bets all over the place. They're horrible. I should just stick to kind of trading the options, trading the futures, using my stops guy because I'm getting blown out betting against this. And listen, you, you've had this call. You think that there's something going to happen. You've been talking about central banks that have been hoarding it. You've been talking about how and you know Bitcoin, and we're going to look at that in a second, is just not working for the reasons that people think it's working in this sort of environment. The only thing I would say the same thing about gold, though, guy, is that like if we have expectations for inflation at the highest they've been in 40 years, and we're going to know again, we have the CPI Thursday morning. We had a what a seven percent print for December. Expectations are for seven point three percent. I think if you're looking at you know some different data, it might end up. Up being much higher. That's one of the reasons why the Fed is going. Those hot jobs numbers kind of reinforces the case. Why isn't gold breaking out, guy? It, it seems like this would be the perfect environment for it. Now, you, you lay out the chart pretty well. You know, I was looking at this from through the options market that in, in vol terms, it's really cheap and that lends itself well for trading the futures, also using stops. So it's just curious. If you get a breakout above that downtrend, what is your target? And then how would you stop it on this downside? Because to me, again, if you're using the futures market, look at that uptrend. Like that would be where I'd put a stop in. That's exactly right. I mean, the lines draw themselves and therefore your entry levels and your exit levels, if you're right or wrong, draw themselves as well. I mean, your stop, if you're long right here, is effectively right below 1800. That trend line, obviously, each passing days, it gets a little more expensive, but it probably comes in around 1780. On the upside, I think you're looking for a breakout probably above, I don't know, 1850 or so. And again, I'm spitballing here because, again, the lines are not exact, but that's the way you trade it. And you asked me a question, why isn't it working? I don't know the answer. It's funny, you know, when inflation is a concern, gold doesn't work. And then when the Fed acknowledges that inflation is a concern, Fed gold doesn't work. So you say to yourself, well, I wonder what set of circumstances will it? And what I've said for a while, and this has not been correct, you know, gold's not a story until it is. And I think we're on the precipice of that, and we'll see. By the way, you have in central banks, you mentioned China correctly, but you have other central banks around the world acknowledging the problem. You're seeing negative yields at the lowest levels they've been in quite some time around the world, which is interesting. A lot of people say that's bearish for gold. I would actually say it's bullish because there's now a tacit acknowledgement that inflation is a problem. This is your baby, Dan Nathan, and we're going to talk about it, obviously, 
CME Bitcoin futures. Yeah, no, it's funny. We've talked about Bitcoin futures a lot over the last five years because they were introduced at just the right time. If you think about it, you know, a lot of people were staying back in 2017 when you had that sort of retail frenzy with Bitcoin as it went from like 10,000 to 20,000 in a short period of time. Bitcoin futures were introduced at that point. And I remember, you know, thinking about it at the time and talking to our friend Brian Kelly about it, folks from the CME, you know, really one of the reasons why, you know, futures exist is not just for pure speculation to the upside. People were like, well, that was it. That was the top. It also helps a lot of people hedge, right? The underlying. So I think this chart is really interesting because here we are five years later and the futures are getting a lot more traction because there's a lot more institutional ownership and there are a lot of more reasons to kind of use the futures market to hedge both longs and shorts, depending upon how you view this thing. You see that steady downturn from those prior all-time highs just in November. And I think it was 69,000 to just about 32,000 or so really sharp breakout above that downtrend seems to be finding a little bit of resistance near that 200-day moving average. And you and I, you know, again, we are no experts. I know that you go to bed each night reading the Bitcoin white paper. I think it's a, a great way for you to kind of ease into your, your decentralized your decentralized slumbers. That's where I was going with that guy. But, you know, for me and you, the way we talk about it, it really gives us a good sense of like kind of risk on, risk off, if you will. And just look at the last couple of days. It did feel about risk on in some of the names that were hard hit, not the Facebook, but some of those other smaller, you know, high valuation tech stocks. And that's what we got here. I think that we probably see this thing chill out a little bit, maybe retest on the downside, that downtrend. And let's see, maybe we get back towards those summer lows near 30,000 or so. It was this week in 1812 that Charles Dickens was born, by the way, in case you care. I only mention that because I obviously wrote A Christmas Carol. And I think of me going to bed. I sort of look like Ebenezer Scrooge with that big stocking cap on. But that's probably for another show. TMI. We want to wish a happy one-year anniversary, Dan, to the ETH Ethereum future. Sorry. ETH celebrates a remarkable first year with one million contracts traded demonstrating strong customer interest and adoption since its launch. Congratulations to CME Group. By the way, Dan, you talk about ETH all the time. As much as you love Bitcoin, I think you love Ethereum more. Well, to be very honest with you, I like the idea of Bitcoin. I'm not, you know, there's, I've been a little turned off lately, guy, of these Bitcoin maximalists. They see no other value for any other blockchains or any other crypto assets than Bitcoin. And I just find that really odd. And I've kind of really gravitated a bit more towards a lot, some of the projects that are being built on, let's say, you know, smart contract layer ones like Ether or Solana, and there are others there. And so those kind of really interest me. So I, you know, I, I look at a tweet like this from the CME and I look at a $1 million, $1 million contracts traded. And I say, this is the first inning and the first pitch of this. And so, you know, good for them there. And again, it's just offering solutions to people who want to get different sorts of exposure. And so there's a lot of institutions that can't buy the underlying, you know, spot and they can, they can do it through the future. So I think that's really interesting. Let's look at that chart though, of ETH, the ETH futures, the minis here. Looks very similar guy. If you think about it, it had a very similar sort of peak to drop decline of about 50% over the last couple months or so also, it seemed that it was building a little bit of a base at the lows over the last week, a little more than Bitcoin. But again, one of the reasons why I'm interested in ETH more than, let's say, a Bitcoin is that some of the projects that we're getting a lot of hype right now, and I know there's a lot of them that are not going to be too particularly useful. But when you think about decentralized finance, DeFi, think about NFTs and the 
this is the, the backbone or this is the gas that's being used to kind of mint them and transact in them. And I just find that a bit more interesting. So to me, ETH, you know, in some ways, I'd love to see these things retest those lows, hold near the summer lows, and that would be a great entry point for me. But I've been kind of, you know, picking at them along the way as they've come in. I met a lot of people at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about how Bitcoin has basically proven itself, um, but they're still waiting to see who emerges victorious in this proof of stake. And, you know, a lot of people think it's Ethereum. I think some people think it's Solana. A lot of other people think the true victor has not emerged yet. We'll see. I look at this and say, yeah, we had a meaningful breakdown that obviously got through that downtrend line, but is the bounce enough? And will we test that sort of 1750-ish level that we basically traded down to last summer. I have no idea. But again, let the lines speak for themselves, Dan Nathan. Yes, sir. All right. Well, we we spoke for ourselves here on Market Call at 11 a.m. And guys, we're going to do it again, aren't we, today at 5 p.m. This has been kind of fun here, me and you just going back and forth. I really feel like you and I need to be like Mike in front of us, like kind of Mike in the mad. Remember Mike in the mad dog? You know what I mean? Like just, you know, I feel like you're, we've always said that you have a face for radio, but you really have a demeanor for sports talk radio. And I got the voice for it as well. I just don't know who would, whom would be whom (laughs) under those guidelines. We'll see, but we're going to have a lot of cool charts. We mentioned a few of them. We're going to have some under the radar names that we've been looking at at the five o'clock show as well. So I hope you tune in. I think we're on Twitter, YouTube Live, Open Exchange. We're all over the place, Dan, Nathan. But I want to thank everybody for joining in to today's Market Call at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Again, thank our sponsor, CME Group. Happy one-year anniversary to those Ethereum futures and obviously Open Exchange. If you like what you saw, we'll be on at 5. I mentioned it. Check us out, a post-market edition of the show. And please check us out, Market Call Street Research, this Thursday 11 a.m., Liz Young, EY from SoFi. We'll see you then. See you then, bud.